Last week, we talked about chastisement, in particular, God's chastisement of his people, of his children. I tried to get across the idea that chastisement biblically is not always punishment or discipline. It is also nurture, instruction, admonishment, and training. God, in chastising us as his children, is doing so out of love in order to make us more like his son, to give us the tools to comfort others and to keep us from evil. Our choice in a fallen world is this. Would we rather be chastised by a loving father or a hateful world? As an aside, we also found some way that we can use the principles of God's chastisement of his children for those of us that are raising children of our own. Hebrews 12, 12 to 17. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again this morning, as a needy people, we come before you and ask that you would just open your word to us. Give us hearts to understand. Give us courage to apply. Give us your spirit so that we can walk appropriately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first admonishment that this passage gives us is to get strong. It tells us to strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Strengthen your hands and your knees. There can be no doubt that the writer in verses 12 and 13 is reminding his Jewish audience of Isaiah 35. If you would please turn to Isaiah 35, I think you will see, not just for these two verses, but for the whole passage today, that this is certainly the passage that the Hebrew writer has in mind. Isaiah 35, and we'll read the, the, whole, ver the whole chapter. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. 
and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and a road. It shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The word strengthen that he uses in Hebrews 12 is also used in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 13. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Same word that, that it uses to strengthen the hands that hang down. It's also the same word used in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. The idea of this word seems to be to take that which is ruined and make it useful again. I think that might describe every person in this room. That Christ has taken that which is ruined and made it useful again. He has strengthened us. And then beyond that, the writer to the Hebrews exhorts us, strengthen your hands, <clears throat> pardon me, strengthen your hands, strengthen your feeble knees. Take that which was useful, has been ruined, and build it up again. The writer, in a sense, is saying to these discouraged readers that now is not the time to give up. He gave them 10 chapters of encouragement and warning. In chapter 11, he gave them examples of what it looks like to have a faith that overcomes even the most terrible persecutions. Now, he pleads with them to bear up under their troubles again, to do with their hands what God has asked them to do, to stand strong on knees that want to bend under discouragement. Not today, the writer says, not today. Now is not the time to wander. 
Make a straight path for your feet, a path of righteousness, cleanness, and holy living, a path with a goal. A twisting, bumping, meandering path will only lead to you laming yourself even worse. The word lame means unable to mobilize your feet or your legs easily. It doesn't mean completely paralyzed, as we would understand it, but painful and ill-prepared for walking. You cannot afford to be spiritually lame at a time like this, the writer says. Be ready to work and to move for the Lord. If you, having difficulty already, attempt a path that is twisted and unpredictable, you won't only be lame, you're bound to dislocate something badly. You're going to make it worse. You will wander off the highway of holiness that we just read about in Isaiah 35. A straight, smooth path gives you the opportunity to be healed. So he's he has exhorted us to get strong. Now he exhorts us to get right. He says, get right with both men and with God. Discouragement, as many of you know, can easily cause us to neglect our personal relationships. To bring this right down to earth, I remember when I was terribly discouraged and my wife would have to say to me, I called so-and-so and we're going to go over there for a visit. And it's the last thing in the world I felt like doing. But I needed to do it because what discouragement does is it removes you from people. Or it causes you to remove yourself from people. So peace with men is to be pursued, not waited for, or worse, avoided. There is some debate in this particular verse amongst theologians whether the, right, whether the writer means pursue peace with all men or pursue peace with all Christians, because what the verse says is pursue peace with all. Setting that debate aside, Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. It is not always possible. But it better not be your fault. We do not attain all of the things that we pursue. I sure don't. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't say, achieve peace with all men. He says, pursue peace with all men. In some cases, that pursuit may be futile, but nevertheless, it asks us to pursue peace. And it says to pursue holiness. So not only are we to get right with men, we are to get right with God. Peace with men and peace with God. Holiness is not a word used outside of the church. When non-believers hear this word, they think instantly of this phrase, holier than thou, giving it a negative connotation. It means you got your nose in the air. 
When we use the word holiness in Christian thought, there are two distinct but related ideas that could be presented. The first is the holiness that Christ imputes to us because we have placed our faith in him as Savior. This is the holiness, holiness with which we shall see God. When God checks our holiness bank account, he sees the holiness of Christ there. It is ours as a gift of his grace. The other idea of holiness is clean living, or that which verse 13 calls a straight path. It is not holier-than-thou living. It is not living according to some code, no matter how good, of thou shalt nots. For the Christian, it is living in a closeness to Christ, so intimate, that our desires are his desires, that our thoughts are his thoughts, that our path is his path. You have heard it said, financially, we must live according to our means. So don't drive a Ferrari when you can afford a Toyota. God has so filled our account with the holiness of Christ that we ought to yearn to live according to our means. We must get right by God's grace and God's grace alone. In verses 15 and 16, there are three lest warnings. If you were paying close attention as we were reading, there's three lest this happen, or lest this happen, or lest this happen. There's three of them. And we're going to close our message by looking at these three things. The writer warns us to look diligently to keep ourselves from a return to legalism, either in outward form or in inward attitude. It is probably a good time to remind ourselves again what grace is. God's grace is unmerited favor toward us. If there is anything we have to do to earn God's grace, then it is not grace at all. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. Let's look at Romans chapter 4 and 4 through 8. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You know, I think if I would have written this, I would have said, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as payment, as money in my account. It's the exact opposite. When you work for God's grace, all you do is incur debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So it seems to me then, that we fall short of God's grace, like the passage we read in, in Hebrews 12 said. We fall short of God's grace 
by trying to earn his favor, to earn his peace, to earn his holiness. According to what we just read in Romans 4, working for God's grace only incurs debt. It's like you going to the mill day after day. At the end of your day, you give the boss $200. It is in our striving to earn God's favor rather than simply trusting Christ and his favor before God that causes men to fall short of God's grace. The other consequence of failing to pursue peace and holiness is that this root of bitterness does spread. Here the writer is alluding back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning in verse 14. I make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt, and that we came through the nations which you passed by, and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so that, so pardon me, and so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Notice that one root of bitterness that springs up is capable of defiling, Hebrews says, which means to stain. It ends up defiling everyone that comes in contact with it. Many, this passage says. In Deuteronomy 29, defilement starts with a man or a woman, then a family, then a tribe, than the whole nation. It is so important for each of us to remember that the root of bitterness can affect a church like this as well. When a root of bitterness springs up in an individual believer, it affects each and every one of us. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of the church being a body. If one part suffers, the whole body suffers. If I hit my thumb with a hammer, I don't say, whew, good thing it's only my thumb that hurts. It's like, it just hurts and it bothers all of me all of the time till my nail turns black, falls off, and comes and grows back in. It hurts, and that's, the, that's what Paul is trying to get across. This idea of a root of bitterness, or wormwood, it says, is one of a poisonous herb sometimes identified as hemlock. And you guys would know hemlock better than I do, but there are strains of hemlock that if you make a tea with it and drink it, that's the end of you, buddy boy. You know what it does? This is really interesting because I think there's a spiritual application here. It prevents you from being capable of breathing. Being bitter towards someone is like trying to hurt them by drinking your own poison. Being bitter towards someone 
is like trying to hurt them by drinking your own poison. Get right with your moral conduct. There are two words used in this final lest warning in verse 16. The two words are fornicator and profane. Let's define these terms and we'll continue from there. A fornicator is anybody that engages in intimacy outside of the marriage bond between one man and one woman. Whether it's physical or in your imagination. In the mind of a writer, when a person fails to pursue peace and holiness, there is a very real likelihood that the fruit of that neglect is fornication. I don't know why this is so. I only know that it is so because this author who wrote Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit of God, has stated it to be so, and he isn't the only one. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. Not right now, but in your own time. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. He links the same thing. When you fail to pursue holy living, fornication rears its ugly head. Look at the whole book of Jude, particularly some verses there around 14 to 18 or something. When you fail to pursue holiness, fornication rears its ugly head. Fornication is a real possibility for those that are not purposeful in their pursuit of peace and holiness. Profanity is a real possibility for those that are not purposeful in their pursuit of peace and holiness. When we think of the word profanity, we think of using bad words. That's kind of what it's come to mean in our language. That's not what it's talking about in this passage. When it talks about a profane person like Esau, that's not what it means. The word profane means the opposite of the word holy. Holy means sanctified, set apart, or unlike any other. Profane means literally only good to be trodden under the sole of your foot. It means common, not special, not set apart in any way. One theologian put it this way, profane is that which lacks all relationship or affinity to God. In this admonition or warning, the writer of Hebrews invites us to consider Esau. I think it is important to spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at what the writer says and invites us to consider about Esau. Because these few verses have been horribly misunderstood by well-meaning people. Verses 16 and 17 say that Esau was profane, unholy, because he sold his birthright for a morsel of food. On the surface, calling Esau profane for this seems a little harsh. He was hungry. He wanted to eat. We're going to call him profane. But let's look a little bit deeper. Esau had a physical need, hunger. He was so focused on his physical need 
that he refused to think about anything beyond it. Let's read the passage, Genesis 25, beginning in 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Remember, despised is to think not very highly of it. Look at what Esau says. I am about to die. I don't know about you, but that seems a little excessive. You would come in from the field maybe a few days before you were going to die to get something to eat, but it sure tells us about what was important to him. I am about to die because I haven't got anything to eat. Esau was willing to give up huge, long-term, future fulfillment for small, temporary satisfaction. This is the very definition of what it means to sacrifice. To sacrifice is to give up the immediate satisfaction for long-term benefit. Esau did not have a spirit of sacrifice. I don't know about you, but I think Esau's behavior is also the very definition of fornication as well. A fornicator, one who yields to the temptation of intimacy outside of the marriage bond, for a moment at least, is willing to despise the huge long-term benefits of a stable marriage relationship for temporary gratification. Is marriage a sacrifice? According to what we just read, absolutely. Young people, it is called a marriage altar for a reason. What do you do at an altar? You make sacrifice at an altar. Some will say that the bride and the groom are sacrificing themselves, and they are not wrong. But in a very real sense, they are sacrificing every other person in the world for the one that stands before them. Furthermore, there is a principle in Scripture that always holds true. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the future meaning and fulfillment in the life of the one making the sacrifice. Notice I didn't say happiness. You don't make sacrifices to make yourself happy. You make sacrifice for meaning and fulfillment, which is far better. All the way up to Christ, whose infinite sacrifice was for our eternal benefit. 
People have been distressed reading about how Esau could not find repentance, even though he sought it diligently with tears. What if this happens to me? What if I sin and I seek repentance with tears and God rejects me? God refuses me. That would be distressing if it were possible. But it's not possible. This passage isn't saying this in the remotest degree. Let's look at the passage in Genesis 27 to see what is really happening here. Genesis 27, beginning in verse 30. Now it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master, and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He sought it with tears. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass, when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Key verse. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Distressed by what he had lost in selling his birthright and losing the blessing, which was the lion's share of the inheritance, we find out in verse 38. He wept because of his regret of financial loss. Because it was impossible for Isaac to reverse the blessing, murder bloomed in Esau's heart. Does this sound like a person who is repentant of sin in his heart? It's not that he sought repentance with tears. 
We read in the passage, what he sought with tears was the blessing. He wanted the financial benefit. There is a world of difference between remorse and repentance. Judas felt remorse and went and hanged himself. Peter experienced repentance and was restored. It was too late for Esau to change his mind about selling his inheritance for a morsel of food. That ship had sailed. But it is never too late for us to approach the Savior. So don't confuse these verses. It says that it was too late for Esau to change his mind. He already ate the soup. It was gone. It was over. It was a done deal. This passage isn't talking about the fact that you might seek repentance and God says, no, I don't think so, just on a whim. Not at all. This is talking specifically about Esau, so I don't want you to be discouraged. It is never, ever too late for you to come to the Savior with a repentant heart. I leave you with this question, then we'll close. Are you willing to sacrifice that which is seen and temporal for that which is unseen and eternal? Are you willing to sacrifice that which is seen and temporal for that which is unseen and eternal? Let's pray.